Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Chris from Dashboard Confessional, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Jenny LSQ, welcome to episode 47 of the LSQ podcast. Before we get into this conversation with my dear old friend Chris Caraba, a couple of things I want to note. Uh, this was recorded back in February when Dashboard Confessional were on tour supporting an anthology called The Best Ones of the Best Ones. And so, yeah, this was kind of like a lifetime ago, back when I could still do these interviews in person. But obviously, it's a different world since then for what it's worth as we listen back to this. I'm just glad that Chris is okay. He was, as you may have heard, in a serious motorcycle accident recently, and he's on the mend, thank God. Uh, And I also have some more exciting dashboard news, so let's listen to the interview and then I'll tell you some more. Hi, Chris Caraba, how are you? I'm good. Here we are together. For the first time in a while. And I think the last time I spoke to you probably was when I wrote a bio for a Twin Forks record or Mm -hmm. something, which was a phone interview, so it doesn't even really count as like a... I know, it wasn't a real visit. But what brings you into Los Angeles this week is tour with Dashboard Confessional. On We're the, playing the Wiltern. Yeah, on the occasion of this recent 20th anniversary compilation thing. The Which, best ones are the best ones. You know, you've been by my side for almost all these 20 years. Can you believe that it's been 20 It's crazy. Years? I can't believe it's been 20 years. I mean, you know, it's interesting because I remember when I first heard your music and we first met and the, the concept of the audience singing along, you know, was one of the things that was divisive about Dashboard Confessional at the time in the indie world. You know, it's interesting to think about now. It's just like how fucked up that is. Just like, why would that be like, we've got bigger fish to fry universe than like having that be a thing you mock. But I wonder if for you, if, you know, sort of your relationship with that phenomena, I'd love to hear kind of about that, about when you first noticed that starting to happen at your shows. And also, I just, like, I don't even know from your from your past, was that something that was common at shows you went to as a kid? Sing-alongs were a thing in my scene, but not to the degree that they were in Dashboard, at least to my memory. And some of that may be that it was like there was less sound coming off the stage, so you could really hear the audience. But I just don't remember people singing every single word, like choruses or the big hook part or whatever, sure. But did it start relatively early it on when very you early, yeah like like immediately like with the very first few shows I did, and because it started so early, I had no choice but to be behind you know be with it because I was like okay this is the thing, and I never um, I was aware some people thought that was divisive or there was some like casting of aspersions on like whether the music had any quality because the audience would sing it. And I thought to myself, I remember thinking to myself, but you make uh, your music for yourself and then you hand it to the audience. Then it's up to them to choose how they're going to enjoy it. So you don't get to dictate. Hearing the audience do it, you can tell that they find it very satisfying in a, in a visceral way. And 
I wonder if that's what singing is for you as well. I mean, if if you're if you find that the act of singing is uh, emotional exercise, it is the emotional exercise. It's very euphoric to me. It really lifts me to a place that is, is almost indescribable. Um, I've tried to meditate. I've tried to try to get to like higher planes. You know, the older you get, the more you're just trying to get in tune with like the cycles of the universe and all this stuff, you know? And like, how do I fit in to the big grand picture here? And so I've endeavored to do that in, in different ways of like, I mean, me- meditation is the best example of that. And I can't do it. Just, it won't happen for me or, or, or just hasn't yet. I'll sit there, try to think of nothing, and I can't think of nothing. I'll try to sit still. I'm not great at that. But I get there almost instantly when I I sing, because it's just like you're releasing the thing that's pent up. You're letting, at least for me, I'm letting go of reservations, because I don't like to be in front of people generally. So I have to let go of that. I have to let go of the fact that of course, you know, you're going to get something wrong in a song or a set. And just let go of that. It's just like everything will just happen. It's probably the one place where I'm the most like present in the now. And even when you're alone, though, when it's not a concert with, with no audience, just, you know, working on a new song or warming up, or it, does it, it still function that way for you? It functions that way. And I can tell because, say I'm writing a song, it's not at all unusual for many hours to go by without me realizing the passage of time. You know, you think you've sat there for an hour and it's, it's been seven. And I know that's common for a lot of songwriters because you just, you just get sucked into this, this moment. I think it's probably for, all, for, for artists of all media, mediums. But for me, I, I don't really get there, say, if I'm like writing in long form or if I'm doing a, making, writing a short story. If I'm, I've been doing all these like creative projects like making hats and leather goods and things just to, to get away from music but be creative. Mm-hmm. And I don't get there, there that way. I quite enjoy it, but it's not like I lose all sense of time and place. Whereas if I just sit there and sing, it's like total surrender. Was that the first sort of creative outlet that you gravitated toward as a kid? or? I mean, I know don't, people don't always think of it as a creative outlet, but skateboarding was the first creative outlet for me. Oh, yeah, that's hella creative. It is. I, once it is, you know how to is. do once you re, once you actually have the skills to make choices, right? Yeah. You're, you're devising your lines and you're trick to trick to trick, and um, sometimes you're doing it by choice, and sometimes you're just going by instinct from one, one trick to the next in your line. And so Looking how old at, were you when, that's, when you started skateboarding? I think I was about 13 when I started skateboarding. I got good fast. It was the first thing I, got, I was ever good at. And it gave me a sense of self. I'd go on to be sponsored by companies, and, um, and it kind of ruined it for me. I went from being very good at something and simply enjoying it to feeling like because these companies now were behind me that I that I must be the best at all times, that the, the people counting on me, people that believed on me, you know, put their stakes behind me and said and said or put their put their weight behind me and said, uh, yeah, we're 
you, you, you excel, keep excelling. And it really became miserable. I would like, I never had a temper with skateboarding. This is a common thing to get so frustrated with yourself normally. Like a lot of skaters go through this. You, know, you slam your board down. You're, you're, you're competing with yourself the whole time. So you can't get mad at anybody else. It's easier to get mad at somebody else because you can be like, ah, they suck or whatever. But when you suck, it's, it's real hard. You know, it's, you punish yourself very hard. I just never was like that. Like miss a trick, oh well, try again. Right. Miss it all day long just until I get it. Man, if I couldn't get something and somebody else got it, I just would, I would lose it. I would really lose it on myself, not on... And it would be this internal thing. I mean, once in a while, I'd, it, would, it would bubble over and I'd you know, slam my board down or something like that. How quickly did it go from like new favorite thing that it turns out I'm awesome at to a thing where you're like, fuck? <laughs> I, guess, I, guess, I guess I was about uh, 13 when I started. I was probably 16 when I got sponsored by the first store I was sponsored by. And then uh, first company was 16 also. By 19, I was miserable with it. Mm. And I, I kind of quit. I just, I, I just quietly quit. I, I quit the companies and stores. And I put the pursuit of it, of, of, of enjoying it on, on the shelf for a while. Maybe forever at the time, I thought. And so why am I telling you this? Because it informs how I would then go on to make decisions for dashboard because dashboard was like this euphoric thing where I, I was good at something and I was good on it for the, for its own merits and my own enjoyment of it. And then people started to like it and I had expectations raised and then I was signed to a label. And so my expectations of myself raised, these are all self, um, these, these, I'm sure I, it isn't fair to say that they didn't, that these, the other people, agents, labels, uh, radio, whatever, didn't have expectations for me, but they weren't, they weren't like, um, you know, foreboding, they were normal. But my expectation was like, okay, I must be, I must be the best I can possibly be and better than I've ever been for every single night. I have to be better than last night. And I was okay with it because I was like, okay, I'm going to not lose myself the way I did with skateboarding. I'd learned that lesson. I, I'd grown to miss skateboarding and the feeling it brought me. And I was determined to not let that happen with music. Right. But were there any points where you've caught yourself doing it again? <laughs> there were. Because I, I can even just think about like, I mean, I remember observing the early first year or two of signing to Interscope and you know the top dog at the label is really excited about it and really amping up expectations and that's a lot of fucking pressure for an artist who's just like finally agreed to be like okay I'll do it I'll do it you got I don't I'll go I'll, I'll, I'll sign to a different label fine I'll 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 step into expectation yep I didn't love it uh I was but I was given in the first on market mission, I was given a really wide berth. There wasn't a lot of what's a better word than meddling, because <laughs> that implies there were were not good intentions from the label. 
there wasn't a lot of like input. There wasn't a lot of input from the label as I made my commission. They knew what they were signing, and they just wanted it to sound good. And that's what we did. But when it came time for Dusk and Summer, they started in with ideas about like singles, which I've never thought about and still don't like to think about, and universality of songs, which I'm really uncomfortable with. I write very personal songs. And they accidentally connect broadly. The learning curve was, was a little steep on Dusk and Summer. I made the record like twice. That was a thing with Jimmy where he like would, I think he does it with everybody. Like you make a record, then he sends you back to make another record. I guess that could work if you don't know he does that, but I knew he did that. Right. So, because he kind of told me so. So like the, the veil was lifted, you know? Yeah. But also like, I mean, you know, Jimmy Iovine is like a, a, rightfully a legend, has made some incredible records as a producer so to have him believe in you as an artist, of course that's exciting. Like, you know, I can imagine where you're like, at that point you knew how to make a record that your fans would like and that whatever. But you're like, well, I got to listen. This guy's like done stuff with like John oh. Lennon and Bruce Springsteen and stuff. Yeah, like, of course. I'm not going to like not hear this guy I, out. I, I'd be crazy not to hear <laughs> this guy out. So I gave it, you know, as they say, the old college try, really. I yeah. really got on board. And I liked the records I made until... Alter the ending, which now as I sit here with you, Jenny, the audience and the way they received that record has made me like that record. But I didn't like that record when I made that record. When, I, when it was all said and done and finished, I didn't like it. It was, it was like three, three go-rounds go to make the record. I don't think Jimmy was as checked into being a label executive as any longer. I think mm -hmm. he just like... The bloom was off the rose right. for that period of his his life. He was on to thinking about things like Beats, headphones, yep. and eventually Apple Music. And yep. so he, instead of like, instead of saying like, okay, you can just release the record you want, he, I think he still wanted to be, um, he didn't want to, I, I can't speak, this is my interpretation. It seemed like he didn't want to seem absent from the process. So he gave like these notes, these real broad stroke notes, like do it again. And, you know, you got to go back and do it another time, Chris. You know, when would you really close? You know, but that's it. You know, you don't know. You don't know what it means. No other direction. You know, like you need more guitars. Like how many more guitars could I put on the thing? It's a guitar heavy song. Okay, we'll put another guitar in it, I guess. Six and a half more guitars. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want forty strings total. Yeah. <laughs> and um. And the one thing though that was said to me, and I don't remember who said it at the label. Could have been Jimmy. Could have been somebody else. But they had started peppering this in, and by alter the ending, it was really a directive that my songs needed to be more universal. The subject matter had to be from like the point of view a third person. Even though I was writing first person experience to make it universal in their minds, I needed to change it to third person as if it was a story that was somebody else's. Um, it just didn't feel like me. Yeah, that, and that just seems, 
I mean, that's just like an arbitrary piece of advice that is it based. It's like that's not the ingredient that. So what I mean, what do you think looking back now? Because that is what, 11 years ago or something at this point. And you did make another dashboard album more recently. And now you've been doing this thing. I mean, when you look back on that period of time, like what's the biggest lesson that you extracted from it? And and, you know, being sort of back in to dashboards back, baby, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, looking back things... now, 10 years ago, like, yeah, what do you what do you think is the is you learned most from that kind of pressure cooker? I would rather say I know better and be wrong than not say I know better. Because they're my songs and they've got to, you know what, the buck's got to stop here. And uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You know, this is something I, I quite like about Dashboard is that we're a niche band. The thing is, the niche is pretty big. But we're just, we're a niche band. You know, so to, to, to try to find the song that's going to, cross they say cross right it's going to cross and it's going to be like this phenomenon of, of, of like lizzo or something well that's just not in the cards for me and if, if i'm real honest it was never really like a desire for me that was other people's desire for me but you know you want to you want to i don't think it's abnormal to like even though like i come from back a punk rock background and you hear all the cautionary tales I still don't think it's like t totally abnormal or wrong to to want to try to learn from these people that are excellent. I mean, you just were talking about the pedigree of Jimmy Ivey, and there's a reason I signed with Jimmy, Jimmy in the first place, which was he had taken some of these artists and pushed them to a new place, and it was like a, there was more depth in the artistry because of it. Whereas I think he was taking, he was giving me the same direction, and I was getting, I was turning the, down the wrong path. Losing, so I don't, losing depth. It's losing depth. And I don't think like, I can't blame Jimmy for that. But I wanted to give it the college. I wanted to be the guy that was like, yeah, I want to learn. I want to learn from this expert. You can't find a, I mean, five, tell me there's like five guys like that in the world, five men or women like that in the world that, that are that successful at understanding an artist and a song and how that can be transformative. Yeah, but it's like, I guess it doesn't exist in a vacuum is the thing I come back to every time. is like when you look at songs that are a true phenomena, whether it's Lizzo or Adele or, I mean, any song that's truly mega, mega, you know, like it's not just that the song has the elemental thing that is just no matter when it came out, it's just the song is the thing. It's all these other forces that, you know... To, that send it where it's going to sort of end up. And it's, it seems like, yeah, that's the thing. The skateboarding store example is similarly. It's like, once you start worrying about forces beyond your control, i.e. what other people are doing or how you stack up compared to how other people are doing, it's like fucks up your, the purity of it. It did. It did fuck up the purity. Of it. I mean, in just a way where whether or not you, think it's audible in your records that like i'm guessing was like emotionally not the most fun time of, of being an artist where you're just like oh shit i let the commercial thing get in again <laughs> like i did and i didn't want it in the first place so so strange did you ever think about just sort of giving quitting giving giving up like just like i don't want to deal with this shit. yep i did but instead i said okay let me do this let me step aside not step 
not not quit, but just let me step sideways for a minute. And I went back to Further Seems Forever and we made a record very quietly. Because we wanted to, not because I was like, oh, this will be curative. Just we wanted to. And then I started a band with my friends that are all in other bands called Twin Forks. And it was really just about music feeling good. There was no possibility it was going to be on the radio. We were never going to ever tour in anything but a van. We still tour in a van. It was just for the sake of like working with the people I love and writing songs that we all love, that had something to say. And in that time, it started. I started to remember the earliest feelings of Dashboard. It was really slow. It took a long time. But then the Dashboard start, songs started to come. And when I say Dashboard songs, they're undeniably Dashboard songs. Like, you know, like think of my like career as like the first three records and the next batch. And I'm all the way in on the first three. And I like parts of the rest. And now moving forward, like starting now, I'm not going to compromise in any way where I won't feel the way I felt about those first three records. Will they be as effective? Will they have an audience in the way those for who knows? Who cares? I have to make sure that's it. That's all I can do is make sure that I feel that way about those records. And you know what? That's a real luxury. That's a, that's a true luxury. I'm, I'm afforded that opportunity to do that now. And I'm going to. That's a luxury you earned. I guess so. I guess so. But it's a, you know, it is, there is luck involved. And there is like the good graces of this audience that decided that I was the one that they were, you know, my band was the one they were going to embrace. So, so yeah, uh, I gotta, I've got to hope and I'm not going to assume, but I hope that because they were there then and, and they felt a certain way, if I get back to that, if I get lucky and I get back to that place, they'll at least give it a chance. And I think I can, I think they, I think they could connect. And as I write these songs now, what may become this next record, it's interesting because the self-doubt, the grappling with the thing, the things change, the um, complications of life change, the highs and lows change, the specificity of all that change. It's incredible, though, that the initial emotional response is almost never changes. But I'm a grown man, and I have different things to say. And I'm curious, through that filter, will it connect with my audience, who is also grown up now? We'll see. So where do you, what's your sort of process like nowadays? Where do you go? Do you, do you write a little bit every day? Um, what, you know, what sort of when you're in the mode that presumably you're in now, when you're not on tour? When I'm not on tour, I write every day. I like to write every day. I like to write a song every day. And so how often do I write a song that I think is, I don't want to say good, good. Uh, worth you, worth con- pursuing or whatever. Worth pursuing is like, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a small percentage. But I love writing songs. I mean, I really love it. I love it in the same way that I love, still love getting on a skateboard, which I love again. Nice. There's no pressure. Do, no you, do you work at home or do you have a studio that you go to? I or? work at home. Yeah. Yeah. I built a studio in my basement, but also it's just like I've got a little writing area in there. Nice. And I, most of the time it's just my voice memo on my phone. I like to, it's just, it doesn't have to be elaborate. There's a great reward in having a, knowing you have a bad song. Like you're in a bad song. 
but I'm going to finish it. Because You're like, ah, oh, I hate this. Song. It's just dumb. It stinks. It's like, what? Is, this isn't saying anything. I've done this before. I'll, or I never wanted to do this. I never wanted to do this, and I'm doing it. But I realized that there's there's two factors that come into play. The hardest part for me, when I have a song, that is that I'm like, oh shit, this is fucking good, is is like finishing it, because you get wrapped up in the like, oh fuck, what if I fuck this up? What if I fuck this up? What if I fuck this up? But if during the bad songs, you force it across the finish line, it's much easier to know that you're going to be able to finish and mm-hmm. go, you, don't, you that what if I fuck this up kind of doesn't go away, but it gets tamped down a little bit. And then the other thing is uh, those bad songs, they have elements that might end up in the good song if you didn't fucking finish it and get, you know, wipe it away, throw the piece of paper away in the trash and say, that's that. And I like writing songs just like as an activity, you know. Like, it's like if I was if I was if I was working like as a at the checkout counter at Home Depot, I would go home and write songs. I love this. Is it is it as compared to how you were describing what singing feels like? Is it is it similar to that, or is it a different kind of? It's, like... it's, it's different because it's kinetic. It's weird with with singing. It like I said, it's a, it's almost meditative, which is like a moment of surrender. Songwriting is like this this um, relentless, fast-paced pursuit of like capturing this thing before it gets the fuck away from you. And, it, and it's gonna. So you're like, shit, all I can do is get almost all of this. That's all you ever get, really. I mean, maybe like Leonard Cohen gets it all. But like most of us just almost get it all. We get as much of it as we can while it's out there, while it's sitting there in the air around us. And so how much stuff do you have at this point for the next thing? Enough. Yeah. You're getting close. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Cool. I feel, I feel good. It feels right. It feels right. It feels right enough that I'm not even like laboring over what if this isn't right? That that doesn't even cross my mind. Just, I think it is right. He's skateboarding again. Yeah. He's... <laughs> I'm all over things. He's man. writing dashboard songs where he doesn't give a fuck. I don't give again. a fuck about shit no more. <laughs> God, so enlightened. You know, when I look out in the audience, and it's great because I can see, I know a lot of these people. There's been years I've been spending with these people, these fans. A lot of them are uh, I've talked to at length, you know. And then I see these younger people, and I'm like, wow, I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to have a chance to get to know them. And it'll be more than right now in this two hours. Maybe there's a few more years left in this. I think I think that's a gross underestimation, my friend. <laughs> so, God, I hope so. I like doing this too much to stop. Love that guy. Uh, thanks again to Chris uh, for the interview, and I'm glad that he's doing okay. Also, exciting to hear him talk about new dashboard music in the works, and it was just announced that uh, the places you have come to fear the most is going to finally be released on vinyl, a reissue out at the end of July as part of a series of vinyl reissues of the early Dashboard albums. So get to Dashboard Confessionals' website for more about that. And the next episode of LSQ features an interview with Kyle Thomas, a.k.a. King Tuck. Can't wait to share that one in another few weeks. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at JennyLSQ. Thanks so much for listening. 